0: Hello SFIA Audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. Archaeology has long utilized advanced new technologies to help us recover our ancient history. There is a certain poetry in using the tools of the future to uncover our past, much as we use those experiences of the past to help us better navigate a safe path into the future. Last fall I attended an event that was a mix of both a technology and futurism conference and a camping retreat, as it seemed like a great place to fish around for some episode topics, meet some fun thinkers, and take a brief vacation. My fellow YouTuber and longtime friend, Cody Don Ridor from Cody's Lab was there too, and on the last day of the event we decided to attend a talk by Professor Brent Seals on Archaeology and a technique he's been developing for scanning old, damaged scrolls that we can't unwind anymore and which might be scrunched up and soaked in sediment. It was an inspiring talk. Using modern scanning and AI, they can virtually unwind the scroll and read it. It is a fascinating approach which we'll be talking about at more length in a bit, but it made me want to see what other advances were being made in archaeology. I was impressed to see how much technology was being adapted to archaeology to help us explore and recover our shared past, in areas like geology, medicine, and many more which we'll look at today. There's a lot of amazing ideas to cover, so settle in, grab a drink and a snack, and hit those like and subscribe buttons. One of the key things to understand when going to today's topic though, Is that archaeology suffers from the problem of being inherently destructive. Digging around and opening up sites means that important context about what was near or might be lost, and cleaning up old altar relics can damage them, though where we're at right now is a big improvement from the past. For example, Athens today has much of its ancient Greek past visible, but in the late 19th century when that was all excavated, the Ottoman, Byzantine, and Roman layers were often recklessly destroyed to get to that we have so many sites where we know there is knowledge to be had but they're afraid of damaging a lot of it in the process of recovering it. On the flip side, time all on its own can ruin things further, and while a relic that's already thousands of years old might not suffer much more waiting a century for better and safer technology, it is one more century for time and natural disasters like fires, earthquakes, and floods to strike, or worse yet, wars, bombing in the first and second world war destroyed many museums and many archeological sites continue to be leveled and looted in conflicts today. We have many damaged books and scrolls in our possession, slowly decaying further because we know if we open them now, they're simply crumble to dust. But even beyond that, it is very common for us to find artifacts because a farmer's plow or construction crew's excavator smacked into them and dragged them up out of the ground. That's not generally very good for those objects, and as soon as someone moves it, the context might be scattered and destroyed. The artifacts also might not be recognized for what they are, and even if they are, they might be quietly destroyed or sold secretly and anonymously, in hope to circumvent any regulation that might shut down operations there until it's been evaluated. It is also hard to know the purpose if something gets moved, if something was buried with someone for ceremonial purposes or used in the kitchen, that's important info, and loss if it's scattered many paces away. And that's a good place to begin our discussion because any recovery process has to begin by first discovering an archaeological site, only then can we work to dig it out and classify, organize, and interpret what we find inside, and this is where LIDAR and ground-penetrating radar can help. If you have a field or a construction site, the ability to detect things of archaeological interest by GPR or ground-penetrating radar is huge. At the moment we still need some reason to think it's worth the effort to bring GPR equipment into a site and check. While we do have some other techniques like using soil electrochemistry to help survey for buildings, GPR has been a huge benefit over the traditional method using excavation and shovel tests to narrow down where the site actually is, and finding objects tends to involve setting up a grid and picking just a few spots to dig and sift through, and it is very time consuming and labor intensive. GPR, which can also be used to build maps of large areas without any excavation, including knocking over a house that might be on the buried site, can help you figure out the likely layout of an ancient village and start making good estimates where things of interest are, but again at the moment it's a bit prohibitive for finding new sites. That may well change as fundamentally a GPR device is relatively cheap, in the tens of thousands of dollars, but likely to get much cheaper with time and scaled up production and use. Indeed, the usual frequency range is 10 MHz to 2.6 GHz, and 2.4 GHz is what most internet Wi Fi is done at. Given the various other data you can lift with the right software, like where rocks are at and how land might settle if plowed or built on, I really would not be surprised if it became routine to do GPL scan of all construction sites, and maybe even farm fields or the entirety of all land, including the now submerged spots near rivers or coasts. In a case like that, and with the help of either AI or volunteers or both, we might be able to inspect every bit of Earth's surface in the coming decades and find virtually every relic humanity left in the ground. At the very least, cheaper and easier scanning makes it much more palatable to those working on a piece of land to let it get scanned and only have those critical bits with buried material get roped off. You can remove things faster too if you know where everything is buried at and I could imagine robotic excavation making that even easier. Not that we're always looking for human relics either. Sometimes archaeologists are not looking for items or ancient buildings, they are trying to investigate how the landscape itself was. Rivers and lakes seem like permanent features to us, but they can change course or disappear over centuries. The kind of trees and grass that grew in an area can help us a lot too when trying to understand a place. The technique to investigate this aspect is called Argo Survey, It requires collecting a deep soil sample and analyzing it, the kind of soil or fossilized seeds contained in the sample can give us incredible data about our ancient past. To collect these precious samples, a long but small diameter bore tube is used, akin to how we can survey other worlds like Mars or Europa or gather ice cores. Right now, Argo surveys are done by hand or by small petrol engines. It's a tiresome and time-consuming activity, But we can't imagine a Mars-like rover helping our future archaeologists. If robotics and automation technology continues to get cheaper and better however, this method could become much more common too, like with LiDAR as well. LiDAR, short for Light Detection and Ranging, rather than anything laser or radar, lacks the ability to penetrate into the ground like GPR has, but in many ways is even better for finding small objects in the ground if they're on the surface, or poking out, A plane flying overhead with lidar, releasing thousands of pulses of light per second from overhead, can quickly spot relatively tiny things like a tombstone fragment. Its impact on archaeology to date is already huge, helping us find over 500 new Mesoamerican archaeology sites of both Olmec and Mayan origin, some dating back to as far as 1400 B.C. When it comes to detecting objects and revealing telltale signs of an artificial origin, like right angles and straight lines, the frequency, or wavelength, of the electromagnetic radiation you're using controls your resolution. Loosely speaking, your resolution is about the same as your wavelength, and a radio post with a wavelength of meters isn't letting you image details smaller than that. You could see a statue was there, but only as a blob, whereas something in the millimeter or micrometer range lets you see the statue's fingernails and buttons or the writing engraved into a piece of stone. And Lidar can go through leaves too, up to four bounces, and by having a plane or drone fly overhead, releasing thousands of pulses a second, each from a slightly different spot, that lets you roll over a forest and find things on the ground or poking out of it. You can do this in a jungle too, as we used Lidar to find a 1200 year old city lost in the Cambodian jungle. It also helped find other related sites near Stonehenge, 60 giant pillars forming a mile-wide superhenge around it. It's been very useful for other sites in England and New England for that matter, and even in the Everglades of Florida. It can be used underwater too, depending on the clarity it can penetrate anywhere from a few feet to over a hundred. It's very handy for finding underwater obstructions near shores or in rivers for boats to safely travel and one dangled by a cord underwater near the seafloor, rather than from a plane overhead, could do better. Archaeology rarely gets the funny that one might wish. The sheer value of LIDAR for other uses, much like GPR, means it can benefit from improvements made for other purposes and even scans done for other reasons, which include everything from terrain mapping to law enforcement applications. Automated drones are the big future of LIDAR, but they have handheld ground units these days too, And it is another thing that I would not be surprised to see have a future incarnation as a feature of your smartphone, though that might be a bit optimistic. Scanning and digitization of archaeology in general is huge though, and will only improve with ever more and better data. Using photogrammetry and structured light scanning is allowing us to learn things about artifacts we never knew before, As I was putting this episode together and asking folks in and out of archaeology with the new big techs helping the field out war, the one I heard over and over and most enthusiastically was LIDAR. It's not just for finding objects in the middle of nowhere either. LIDAR can be used to help spot cracks and leaks in the basement, for instance, or where water might flood across a field that isn't quite flat. That's very handy for helping properly apply drainage to a work site or farm field, as well as water and fertilizer and even pollutants in the water. And we have other scanning methods that can penetrate rock or higher layers, such as through magnetometry or tiny robots that can snake their way into old ruins, through tiny cracks and fissures, or by drilling small holes. And this means we don't necessarily need to dig something up. It's a weird way to look at doing archaeology, but in many ways our goal is to leave things buried if we can. Often this is because we suspect we'll be better at learning from the site without damaging it in the future. Which has turned out to be true and likely will only continue to be more true with more time. It's hard to be patient where curiosity is concerned, especially since time also damages things. Non-destructive scanning offers us the chance to strike a good compromise, leaving things buried for future excavation while learning much of those secrets now. So we don't really want to excavate some old village, not if we can make a digital recording of its layout without ever needing a shovel, Except maybe to grab some specific artifacts which might have auto writing we couldn't otherwise see. Artificial intelligence, though, might let us get around even that. As I mentioned near the beginning, it was a talk on using scanning techniques and AI to unwrap ancient and damaged scrolls virtually. That got me wanting to do an episode on archaeology. In addition to classic X-rays, there are many frequencies of light, not to mention other non-photonic radiation methods like electron microscopes that can pass through things opaque to our vision. You can spot things of different density and makeup, like a layer of parchment where you could see the difference between ink soaked in from writing a letter and a spot left blank, and we could tell how deep that is and thus build a complete three-dimensional image of all the paper or parchment pages or layers and where the ink was, or even where two different types of ink were used, colors or some other writing medium like pencil. Consequently, that's easy enough to convert into a virtual book or scroll you can use without having to open it, except the virtual version is on your computer and doesn't require much software. But what if part of that scroll had gotten wet, or was under a leak that was dripping muddy sediment on it, or if a chamber of papers in some basement depository got flooded and was left to dry, and after opening a few and seeing them rip, or they just got left alone to get mildewed, or a shelf collapsed and crushed or mashed some damp ones. I probably do not need to sell anyone on the value of archaeology and history, was already several minutes into an episode titled The Future of Archaeology, but if you need extra reason why document recovery is valuable to a society, then keep in mind that forensics often needs to restore paperwork that's been damaged by fire, water, shredding, time, or all of the above. So a lot of these techniques will be valuable to more than just understanding our ancient past but solving modern crimes too. Truly the job of detective and archaeologist often overlap and that certainly applies to the tools whether it's destroyed in documents or ancient scrolls, and you can use the modern ones for real evidence of how these processes work. As an example, by taking newly made scrolls with known writing and patterns on them and subjecting them to similar damage, we can teach an AI to take a scan and unwrap and repair that scan to show us the original. This is easier said than done of course. And this brings us to the Digital Restoration Initiative because there are vast numbers of damaged ancient scrolls that we have recovered over the years that have been wisely left untouched as they couldn't be safely unrolled. Virtual unwrapping and digital restoration got their start back about the turn of the century with the repair of some of the burn damage to the Beowulf manuscript that occurred back in the 18th century, and we see it progress in the last couple decades with unwarping of old pages and virtual unwrapping of scrolls. Trying to repair the scrolls found at Herculaneum, after the place was buried by volcanic ash, almost 20 centuries ago, takes far more skill though. If you've seen those recovered scrolls, or the Engedi scroll believed to be from the 3rd or 4th century BC, it's not hard to understand why. They don't look like some decaying and brittle scroll like we see from the dusty ruins or libraries in movies, they look like a burned stick, and I for one would not even have thought they were man-made just from the sight of them. There's nothing to carefully unroll here and carefully decipher, they are ruined, but we can 3D scan them in incredible detail and let an AI go to work. I'll link the Digital Restoration website for folks who want the deep dive on either the scanning process or the AI's function, but for complexity, I'd say it's like trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle, except you don't know what the puzzle is of and someone threw the box and pieces into a trash compactor or fireplace then dumped the remains in a pit and filled it with mud. Now there are limits on what you can do with things like this, and as we discussed in the case of Roko's Basilisk, the idea of an AI being able to resurrect the dead by scanning their brains, you need something that is essentially intact as data, such as being buried in ash or fossilized. Corrupted data can be repaired and guessed, something truly scrambled would not be. So while we could learn a lot from a damaged scroll or body that was preserved this way, you cannot unburn the Library of Alexandria or uncremate someone whose ashes were scattered to the wind. But you never know when you'll find an old chamber, sealed canopic jar, or crypt that's in horrible condition but actually has kernels of preserved data for us to use, and AI will be invaluable in that role going forward. Probably also in terms of helping us find good places to search or recognize apparent garbage that actually is a priceless relic of the past. While we usually associate archaeology with digging up old sites and trying to make sense of broken bits of pottery and art, we may see a future by exploring humans themselves. As an example, using AI, it might be possible to feed in various modern and ancient language examples and guess or extrapolate our way back to various earlier languages or ones from periods in between two better documented ages or neighboring locations. We may even be able to use improved models of human psychology and sociology to help us determine more about day-to-day life in some ancient culture, where we know some action was being done, but not the intent or purpose, and often have to guess rather wildly. You might find the idol of some old god, surrounded by bodies of dead children, and not know if they were sacrificed to some blood-hungry dark god, or brought there when sick for hope of healing and laid to rest there for protection in the afterlife. Indeed, over the centuries, the idol might have served both roles as the culture shifted, and the signs of that change could be very hard to spot but present among those ruins. Our ancestors were complex folks, and changed much with time and place. Primitive does not mean dumb or simple, they were not us, but at least for many thousands of years back, their brains were basically the same, and fundamentally there is a common shared origin and much exchange of ideas, and that's through language, written or spoken, as well as art and technology. Well we can also exchange data through our DNA, and as we build up a more complete picture of humanity's DNA pool, we should be able to not only better connect old DNA to now, in terms of cultural migrations, but help restore damaged DNA samples to be more accurate, As an example, the half-life of DNA is sometimes given as 521 years, which is an approximate figure unlike radioisotopes. We have DNA found in ice cores that are half a million years old, not half a millennia. Generally, the period called a half-life is the time which DNA we might gather from bones would have had half the bonds in a piece of DNA break. So if we imagine a book that had half its letters get randomly smeared or erased, we can't imagine using AI in a dictionary And knowledge of word frequency and combinations to reconstruct that book, but your body contains trillions of cells with DNA in them, with very little variation in those from each other. So not only could we potentially reconstruct a damaged book, but with a billion identical copies of that book, each damaged but randomly so, we should be able to produce a very accurate replica of that original manuscript, And the same should be true with some organism who contains trillions of mostly decayed samples of the same DNA. As DNA extraction and reading gets easier, we might be able to take some bones which are 5000 years old, where 10 half-lives of DNA passed, and where only 1 in 2 to the 10th or 1024 bonds remain intact in a strand of DNA, and by looking at millions of them, reconstruct a perfect copy. That most of that DNA will not have changed between person to person and century to century just makes it a bit easier. Needless to say, that opens the door not just to tracking human migrations of the past but also to recreating extinct animals, and we discuss that more in our episode De-Extinction. And a greater knowledge of genetics can also let you make educated guesses to fill in blanks based on what you know the needed functions are same as a mechanic might look at a smeared blueprint of a car and just know that it is a car and it needs a fuse box and a carburetor and that if they're missing that's probably what those two smeared spots were. On that note, and to close out on a more far future note, if it is possible to use AI to unwrap damaged scrolls and inspect the DNA and old bones to reconstruct undamaged DNA, maybe it might be possible to reconstruct a well-preserved brain. We contemplate this technology for brains frozen in cryo for future resurrection, and if luck found us a well-frozen body or one very untouched, we might be able to bring them back by copying their brain digitally and doing some repairs and educated guesses. Sadly, the most obvious candidate, Ancient Egypt and their habit of mummifying people and putting their organs in sealed canopic jars, won't work here, for whatever reason they did not value brains and just discarded them, Though probably by liquefying the brain by whiskey it, rather than pulling chunks out through the nose, as often gets said, perhaps some other culture we might find might have kept them, rather than tossing them out. Who knows what unknown kingdoms and cultures remain still buried under the sands of time? And if so, perhaps we might one day be able to resurrect a few first hand witnesses of ancient times, who spoke ancient tongues and performed ancient rituals, and lived daily lives we can only glimpse a shadow of right now nor can we ignore the possibility of using it on future worlds if we discovered relics of an ancient alien civilization, or abandoned human colonies or derelict spaceships or habitats we had to investigate. Either way, while our ancestors of the past may not have valued brains and discarded them, we have no desire to discard our own knowledge of the past, and as we saw today, our toolbox for peering into the past grows ever bigger the further we walk into our future. Today we were talking a lot about how to decipher ancient texts and ruins that were terribly damaged by time, but while we might want to decode old documents, we typically would rather nobody was decoding our private correspondence, let alone some internet hacker or other entity covertly monitoring your web activity. This is where a virtual private network like NordVPN can help protect us. NordVPN is the fastest VPN, and with one click you can protect yourself by routing your internet traffic through one of NordVPN's thousands of servers spread all over the world. That also lets you avoid viewing limitations based on the country so you don't miss your favorite content, like this show which is apparently unavailable some places, or that British sci-fi show you can't watch unless you're in the UK. This also means while we're traveling we can still do all our online shopping and viewing from home, virtually. NordVPN is more than just a VPN though. Their threat protection shields me from malware, trackers, and ads, while their dark web monitor notifies me if someone leaks my credentials, and their meshnet allows me to connect to my devices remotely and securely. My data is always protected by next-generation encryption, and NordVPN does not track or share what I do online, and now, with the new proxy browser extensions, NordVPN has made it even easier to protect your privacy let you bypass censorship and keep you safe while you browse, use browser-based tools, or play browser games and even customize it to decide which website sees your real IP address or your VPN's IP. To try NordVPN out risk-free with a 30-day money-back guarantee, go to nordvpn.com slash and enjoy NordVPN on up to 6 devices on any major platform with 24-7 customer support to help you whenever you need it. That's NordVPN.com slash So today we were looking at decoding and hacking our past, and next week we'll look at the concept of simulated universes, and how we might hack or escape them if we're inside one. And next Sunday, March 26th, we'll have our monthly livestream Q&A, before closing out the month of March, on March 30th, with our two-hour special, The Advanced Spaceship Drive Compendium, where we'll take a look at nearly a hundred different star drives, from existing tech to the entirely hypothetical. Then we'll head into April to look at the concept of Galantic Capital Zones and their implications to the Fermi Paradox. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also help support the show on Patreon, and if you want to donate and help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, IsaacArthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes early and ad-free on our streaming service, Nebula, at go.nebula.tv slash Isaac As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.